You're listening to Lifelong Learning on ReachMD. The following program was recorded at the 2018 Annual Meeting for the Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions. Here is your host, Alicia Sutton. So we are broadcasting from the Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions at the Annual Meeting. We're in Orlando, Florida. I'm excited to have an interview. It's actually a two-part interview. I'm starting with my two guests. We're going to be talking about predicting the potential for a CE activity to lead to behavior change, and it's that predicting part that we're going to get to. So please introduce yourselves. So I'm Hilary Schmidt, and I am with the Caliber Institute for Quality Medical Education. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And hello, I'm John Ruggiero. I'm within the Medical Affairs Organization within Genentech, a supporter within this industry, and I'm happy to be here as well. Terrific. Thank you, guys. So put the lay of the land out there, that there's somewhere around 150,000 activities, certified activities, any given year that clinicians can go for. And so it, it begs the question of how, how do we know which ones might be effective? And actually, not that many are that effective in changing behavior. Can you address that for us a little bit? And sure. So lots of meta-analyses and research shows that probably less than 20% of the education activities out there actually drive behavior change, and probably less than 5% actually lead to improvements in patient outcomes. So the question is, how do healthcare providers, the consumers of that education, actually find education that meets their needs and that has the greatest predictive value to change, improve patient care? Another challenge is, is when do we actually find out whether or not an educational activity is driving improvements in performance in patient care? And that's sometimes because it's many months down the road that you get feedback from the outcomes studies. Way down the road, frequently, the activity is no longer even available. So that's a huge challenge. And wouldn't it be fantastic if we had a prospective way to identify that education that has the highest potential to lead to behavior change. And that was the challenge that we set out to solve. That's interesting. And John, from your perspective, obviously, in providing these educational grants to affect change in healthcare, what's the thinking in your organization? What's so important to recognize here is I was so engaged and excited when Hillary asked us to be a supporter of such an initiative, because if we truly believe as educators that we are adult learning experts, or believe in the principles of adult learning, believe in cognition, believe in behavior change theories and the practices that help implement those changes, we have to be willing to suggest that there's strong science behind predictability. And in order for me as a supporter to continue being a good steward of the finances that I provide for all these great educational activities in this industry, I have to be able to predict what is going to be most effective so I can generate the win and the success story for my leadership and within my organization. So, so what are the, thank you for that, are, what are the underlying principles behind sort of the solution that you came up with? So we know a lot about the variables that drive behavior change based on research that goes back decades from the cognitive, behavioral, and social sciences. So we thought, why not leverage that, identify those variables that we know have been proven to drive rapid learning to drive retention of information, drive recall of information at the point of care, and more importantly, the ability to use that information fluidly in caring for patients. So we know a lot about that research. Why not look at it, identify variables that are related to instructional design, and measure activities based on the extent to which they include instructional design elements that have been proven to drive behavior change? 
That's interesting. And are these elements applicable across any format in education? That's a good question. It's a great question, and the answer is that learning is learning, regardless of whether you're reading information, whether you're in a live activity, whether you're participating in a webcast or an online activity, and the same principles that determine whether you understand information rapidly, remember, and can use information fluidly apply across the full range. However, in the study that we're doing right now, we're focusing on online activities okay. because they're around for two years. Right. And the second part of our interview, we'll talk about data outcomes and what happened with this. But where did you conduct this study? Where were the users from? What were we looking at? And a little bit about that target audience. Well, one of the first ways to respond to that is Hillary and her organization were successful in gathering support from eight different supporters. Excellent. Um, which is a, a tremendous feat, by the way. I mean, the fact that there are so many supporters behind wanting to do something that's more effective something that allows them to drive home the appropriate message and to support the appropriate types of education is just really tremendous. So eight supporters selecting a various number of activities okay. from many different providers, which came to about 141 different activities that were identified, correct, amongst the eight supporters. Now, you'll find out in part two that 141 went down to 77 because oh. not all the activities met the expected criteria that made this scientifically rigorous. But it That's was just an amazing process to just be part of this and just have constant conversation around what we were supplying and what we could help address for this specific initiative. I like that. Looking out five years from now, from both your perspectives, you know, from the educational design, and I use that term quite broadly because you are an expert, I know, from many years of history oh, yes, in it, and from yes, the funder is. side, I, I, yes. I, I know Hillary, and it's from the funder side, so from both of your perspectives, five years down the road, imagine this tool being used more. What do you think is going to happen with education? I say if this tool does turn out, as we strongly believe it will, to have the predictive value that it's designed to determine. We will have stakeholders in the CE world who are able to find quickly and easily education that is the most engaging, the most effective, and has the greatest impact on patient outcomes. We'll be able to do that rapidly, without guessing, and within very short time after an activity becomes available to the learners. Are you hoping that perhaps there'll be a demarcation, a scale put on it? We love the idea of a scale, in particular recognizing education that meets the highest standards. Maybe it will be the top 10% of all the education that we see, that kind of like a, a good housekeeping seal of approval or a Michelin star type right. activity. We haven't determined exactly what those criteria will be yet, but the goal is that we would love to recognize best designed education. And then people can learn what that looks like. Right. knows that have predictive value and uh, people can find it easily. It's a great you know, goal. As a former provider, I would see this as an incredible tool to help me assess whether or not I was meeting specific criteria against mm -hmm. the baseline. And I would look at this not as a rejection of my great idea, but ways that I could perhaps tailor my education to make it more effective and more transformational. As a supporter this is all about making sure that the education you support is going to a transformational goal. Right. So it's not just about knowledge acquisition. How can we help address the current pressures within the current healthcare marketplace mm -hmm. to show that education is truly an agent of change? So to answer your question very simply, although that was long-winded, I apologize about that. That's a good answer. The, no, the answer very simply, um, for me, it's, it's just really focused on the following. We need predictability. In times of disruption, it is key. Yeah. We need to have perhaps a more standardized outcomes process. 
and we need to be open to the fact that current outcomes models need to be evolved to meet the current demands. That's excellent, John. But because of your background also, that's valuable because as an educational provider and as a funder, and frankly yours as well, you know, from the backgrounds that you both have. Thank you so much for joining us. That really part one is excellent. You've laid it up there for your colleagues who are going to come in and talk about the results and what the future looks like to them. Thank you. Thanks Thanks. so much for having us. Thanks for joining us. And again, we're broadcasting from the Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions at the annual meeting. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. So welcome back. This is part two of an interview. We are at the Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions at their annual meeting. And part one, we were talking with your colleagues about predicting the potential for a CE activity to actually lead to behavior change. And they set it up for us to understand what the problem statement is. And you all are going to help us understand what the results were of what you've done. So I would like you to introduce yourselves to our audience here. Please, Maria. Mm-hmm. I'm Neely Salamanov. I'm a researcher based at Adelphi University and the Caliber Institute for Quality of Medical Education. Great. Thank you for joining us. Hi, I'm Greg Salinas. I'm the president of CE Outcomes. Thank you for joining us. So we understand, obviously, that there is a way to measure that quality. You went about a process to develop. Can you talk through that process? Absolutely. So as Hillary already mentioned, we identified the instructional design features that are most likely to predict behavioral change based on meta-analysis and literature review. And then we operationalized those instructional design features into items, scale items that are able to be coded by non-expert trained coders. And so our scale has two dimensions, frequency, to what extent is an instructional design used in an activity very frequently, only once, twice, uh, and then quality. How well is it being used? Because a feature could be used once but very well or many times but done very poorly. And so then we uh, recruited raters, four PhD-level non-expert raters, because we wanted to produce scores that would be as objective as possible and not based on expertise and prior knowledge. And we trained those coders and conducted periodic reliability analysis to make sure that those coders really code these activities reliably. So once the coders coded the activity reliably using the materials that we provided them, we coded the activities provided to us by the supporters. Excellent. So I understand there were 77 activities Mm -hmm. in the end that were selected. Mm -hmm. Any big takeaways for you from an instructional design standpoint from that scale that stand out? Mm -hmm. So I think even just now with the sample that we have, we can learn so much about the state of continuing medical education from the sample we have. So we can see that some instructional design features are used well and quite frequently by many activities. And some instructional design features are not being used at all or are being used by only a small amount of activities. So demonstrations is an example. Okay. An instructional design feature that we know is really important for driving behavioral change. Right. And so we're able to not only characterize a specific activity and compare between different activities, but also establish a baseline or an average across activities and look at how far a given activity is from the average. Also look at profiles for the top 5% activities and the bottom 5% activities and identify what are the features that are characterizing a higher level activity. That's interesting. And, and Greg, you obviously worked on the outcome side. And sure. So, so a main component of this in, in that we have this scale and we want to make sure that the scale is valid. So 
a question that happened from the beginning is, do the best programs as rated by this scale lead to the best outcomes? So for that, all the outcomes were gathered from these programs, all the reports that were provided to the supporters were, were given to us to make some sense out of it and to give some kind of standardization to it. And that was some of the trouble here because as anyone who's ever done this before knows that every single provider that does education, even even within its own provider, sometimes the different reports the provider are completely different. They use different measurement, different scales, different rubrics, different samples, different types. I mean, they're different therapeutic right. areas. So how do you make one measure of all of them and make it consistent? So that was the struggle that we had, and it's a struggle that, that everyone who's trying to aggregate reports faces. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, how did you go about this? And this so is- it was a process. So first we started thinking, like, okay, well, we're going to do a typical kinds of uh, kind of effect size on this. We're going to, you know, look at what's the general means of them, what are the standard deviations. As we got deeper, we found that not everyone provided standard deviations for this. Not everyone provided the appropriate scores, so we had to go back a step. We were initially wanting all level five outcomes. Well, we found, you know, out of the 70 something, whatever, we only had five that had level five outcomes. Okay. So we had to go down to level four, level three. So, so really we're kind of making assumptions on assumptions here, trying to get what does every one of these agree on? What we ended up with is providing some sort of comparison between the percentage scores within a outcomes of the control versus the assessment, whether that's a pre-post, whether it's a post-control, any kind of, what's the difference between them and got them on the same page and standardized just that score. So we at least have something we can work with now. Yeah, that's excellent. How far away do you think we are from having a tool that can be widespread with educators to help them and, I, and, and funders, so they could look at something as well and understand. I don't think we're far. I mm-hmm. just think that the problem, I think everyone has the capability of doing it. I think we just all have to agree what that is. I think that's going to be the struggle. If you're putting on an education, there's some certain things you want to highlight, and there's some things you might not want to highlight. So, And, and that will de- depend on the program. So so I think, I think getting everybody on page about maybe some standards. These are the standard things that we want to measure. Then you can do some other stuff if you want to. But as long as you have those standards, I think that's where we need to go, some sort of standard. All right, and we talked about in part one about whether these criteria can be applied across it or the scale across any format, right? Mm-hmm. But there must be a differentiator between, so you had mentioned demonstration being an excellent mm-hmm. educational tool, a learning way, and yet in an enduring piece where it's flat print enduring versus a video where you really can show demonstration. Do your criteria shift in your scorecard and all of those uh, scales? Mm-hmm. Our items are not content dependent or format dependent. And so, you know, we've seen examples like this. We can have a written activity that actually provides with excellent demonstrations using images and brief texts that demonstrate an interaction or True. between True. a patient and a physician. And so we see our experience, and this is not, we'll need to provide you with an empirical quantitative response to that. I would like that. But our experience watching all these activities is that we can really see the features present in all formats. Interesting. That's very good. Where do you see education changing as this potential model gets accepted, or where do you hope that it will go? It's been such a pleasure to be in this conference, and this is a collaborative study, and this is what has been so amazing and fun about it, because we're collaborating with supporters, with learning instructional design experts, with CE outcome experts, and so we're getting all these different perspectives about how the skill could be used, and people are reaching out to us and saying, as a provider, this could help me create better education, or right. this could help me understand what it is that I'm providing to my customers. Supporters, you know, you've already heard from John. Exactly. So I think that the scale is 
really, its strength is, the, is in that it's relevant for everyone involved in education. And right. so I would love to see it really get accepted by the community and as a service to the community. That's excellent. Yeah, this, I think every stakeholder, yeah, like you said, is impacted. Yeah, I think I think everyone understanding what it is that that is happening here, and that, that you know we're not trying to change the way people are doing their education, and you know we're just trying to see what works and what doesn't. And that's that's been the question since the beginning: what works and what doesn't, and, and how do we make those changes, and how do we improve what we're doing? How do we, which will not only improve clinician practice but also patient lives. So I, th- I think that's that's the ultimate goal here: is like what can we do to really make a difference? Excellent. Well, it's great insight between what your colleagues did in part one and what you've shed light on in here with the tool. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. You've been listening to Lifelong Learning on ReachMD, featuring key insights from the Alliance's 2018 annual meeting. To download this podcast and others in this series, please visit reachmd.com slash lifelong learning.